My name is Jeff Harbach. I'm the CEO of Coffin Fellows and the host of the Coffin Fellows podcast. This season, our podcast is produced in partnership with Mighty Capital and features different Coffin Fellows as co-hosts. In this podcast, we dive deep into the personal narratives of some of the most successful names in the venture capital industry, but we're not here just to explore their highlight reels, however impressive they are. From failures and formative learning experiences to inflection points and aha moments, we discuss the real, authentic journeys that each individual goes through to become the best version of themselves in order to best serve the entrepreneurs they invest in. Covering various themes in venture capital investing, we speak with the world's top leaders in capital formation, all from a place of authenticity and vulnerability. Together, we'll unravel what truly makes a great venture capital investor. Now let's meet today's host and their guest. Hi, I'm Essie Moadi, founding partner of Mighty Capital, and I'm excited to host this series on the age of product. Let's hear from my guest today. All righty. Hey, Joe. Great to see you. Welcome. And why don't we start by having you introduce yourself? Sure. Thanks for having me on. I'm Joe Robinson, co-founder and CEO of Hummingbird. We're an early stage venture in financial compliance. Before this, I spent time at some great financial institutions. Uh, first one in my career was at Square. I was a product manager there for a few different products. I left that and became the vice president of product for Circle, which is an early cryptocurrency exchange, and later headed up the risk and data science groups there uh, before leaving, spending some time on my own projects, and eventually starting Hummingbird. That's awesome. Yes, and um, with your your product background at some of these really successful early stage companies, we'd love to hear maybe as a as a way to get us going about your relationships with the venture capitalists leading um, investments at Square and Circle, maybe pick one of them that you had a special relationship with and share with us how you how you met them, how they added value to, to you, to the product team, what made them stand out. Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting, you know, in those roles, I was, um, you know, a little bit earlier in my career and and sort of in the middle level of management um, at Square, you know, my interactions with uh, investors and board members was relatively limited. Definitely remember some of the board members coming into the office and in particular, I think Square had some celebrity board members over the years. So it was always kind of fun to see those folks and uh, meet them on the investment side. Uh, but, you know, my, my sort of interaction with them was limited to just preparing, uh, you know, slides and things like that, that went into various decks for review. This is interesting. I, I was a bit closer to it at Circle, you know, in particular, uh, General Catalyst was a supporter of Circle. It's actually, Circle was founded by uh, the same executive team as a prior role I'd had at a company called Brightcove, which was an uh, enterprise SaaS platform for managing media content. Uh, and General Catalyst invested in both companies, Brightcove and Circle. And early in my career, actually, with Brightcove, uh, David Orfeo, who is one of the managing partners at General Catalyst, would put on different sessions and things like that for product management. There were held at the, uh, the Cambridge office of, of GC. And um, that's actually, I think, where I got uh, 
agile, you know, scrum master certification was in the GC office there or somewhere around there. So it was actually really formative for me as a product manager. And, and I remember David always being very supportive, but it was mostly in development of my career as a product manager and, you know, not as much as, uh, on the entrepreneurship side. So kind of a different experience, but, but definitely a positive one. That's great. If there's uh, maybe some learnings on as a product manager or product leaders at these uh, super successful companies that you have, what would you what would you share with with your younger self? Yeah, great question. You know, Square in in the early days of Square. So this was 2011 to 2014, and I joined. There there were a few people in the product org, but really, uh, really only one other person who kind of formally had that title of product manager. And I feel like that experience really taught me to you know to really kind of consolidate the vision for what you're trying to do, build the team, make the argument for resources and staffing, and then actually sort of see the project through. Uh, it wasn't just a given at that time that you would have a product team to actually work with to deliver on that stuff. And so I think it really helped me kind of articulate some of the vision for the products, the use case, the potential for them. Uh, and, and just make a strong case for why the company should pursue some of those products. Uh, specifically, I, my first product there was Square Dashboard, which is the merchant view of their account, used mostly for back-of-house functions like accounting and reporting, uh, inventory management, other things like that. Relatively easy case to make for it, but uh, was one that you know the company was sort of really, really focused on the front of house operations, both the point of sale app and the, the consumer apps. So it was a bit of a challenge to get that team going. But once we did, it ended up being one of the, you know, the stickiest products at the company, uh, one that the company has really invested in over the years. So that was great. I think at, at Circle, um, you know, was working with a team I'd worked with previously um, on the executive side. I went in there with the vice president title of product. Uh, there are already great teams in place. And so I ended up leaning into sort of the product marketing and BD sides of the role. They had great engineering leadership and things like that, handling some of the more technical aspects of product management. But I ended up filling a bunch of different business needs, and I think my openness to it and generalist background kind of led to uh, just doing a lot of different work for the company, uh, the culmination of which was, you know, of course, taking over the risk and data science groups, which are, you know, fairly deep in the weeds practice areas for a financial institution and areas that really, you know, challenged me to come up to speed on quickly sort of develop product to fill those needs. But it was exciting and a really new experience and a new practice area. And I've spent, you know, the rest of my career since then pretty focused on that that topic. So definitely uh, caught my attention. Right. And uh, you and I have known each other a long time. And I remember you going through some of that experience and then that experience leading to founding Hummingbird. Um, do you want to share maybe that story and then uh, from that product career to now a CEO career, what are some of the uh, transferable skills? What are some of the things that surprised you? 
And if you can relate that also to relationship with uh, with investors, of course, how that evolved. Absolutely. I'd be happy to. So in a little more detail, my career at Circle, I was the VP of product for the first year or so that I was there. And then we launched and like, like pretty much every fintech company in the space, um, realized, you know, what a challenge uh, fraud and, and sort of financial crime issues are for fintech companies. And, you know, we were certainly not unique in that. I think every company I talk to these days, which is a lot, goes through a very similar, you know, learning curve. We realized that we needed real leadership and product built for some of the back of house functions like risk and compliance. Um, and I ended up, you know, basically taking over the risk group and, and forming and building out a new data science group. Uh, that experience, you know, it's a space that is really rich with vendors. So a big part of my role in building out those practice areas was the business development and vendor management partnerships. I sometimes estimate that I probably met with about 100 different vendors in the space and contracted more than 10 of them. And uh, that experience, you know, one of the things I got to know about it is where there were vendors, where there were good sources, and where there were unaddressed pain points. Um, so in many ways, Hummingbird is the thing that we always wanted to buy. Um, it didn't make sense to build in-house, uh, but we could never actually find a great vendor to do it. You know, that's for a variety of reasons about Hummingbird's model where it doesn't make sense for a single financial institution to invest heavily in you know, its investigator experience and workflows and some of the things that we do to fight financial crime. Uh, however, it makes a lot of sense if you can sort of build a platform that does that and, uh, and then you know, sell it to many different financial institutions, which of course is our model. So. Um, it was a it was a great experience and a nice entrepreneurial journey. You know, it effectively was a need that we spotted, but just didn't make sense for a, you know a fintech company to build. So ended up you know leaving leaving Circle. It's almost a, a year and a half later, so definitely took some time and explored some other projects, but ended up building Hummingbird around some of those needs. And I love how that transition, how you're describing it, right? It comes from a, a product need. So you have your, your product leader hat on, but then as a product leader, you're already driving a lot of the business aspects and doing the, the CEO work. Um, and so it feels like a very kind of organic transition. Can you share maybe a, a story of a, an investor who helped you along the way during that, that transition and what was valuable and, and memorable about that. And, and if there's none, that's, uh, that's fine. That's a good insight too. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, absolutely. You know, I think the, maybe to your earlier question about the differences between product management and, and being a CEO, you know, it's, it's just sort of the, the, the running the company and administration of the company and, those elements of it that proved to be different and not part of the typical PM role. So yeah, we we were we were very blessed to work with a number of great uh, investors, even from the seed round of the company forward. Um, you know, we had done a, a friends and family angel round. It was mostly 
you know, industry connected folks, which is a great way to do a round like that. And then for the seed round, we ended up focusing on, you know, kind of seed round specialists. And so uh, Homebrew Ventures, uh, Satya Patel led the seed round. Um, we had support from a part of the Omidyar network, which is uh, the Omidyar family from eBay fame. Uh, TTV Capital, Designer Fund, and some great angels joined the seed round as well. To to get to your question, like, you know, did investors help me personally kind of make that transition? Yeah, I, I found a lot of value actually from working, you know, very closely with, with Satya at Homebrew. Part of their model is that they help, uh, you know, product-focused founders become companies and CEOs and and really help the seed round company grow into an A round and B round and so on company. We also met and worked with during the seed round, the team that led the A round. So uh, Kabir Kumar at uh, Omidyar, which, you know, part of it rebranded as Flourish Ventures, has been a supporter of Hummingbird since the early, early days and was super helpful during the seed round, ended up leading the A round and has just been a great, you know, mentor and advocate along the way since the beginning. So you have different things from different folks. Like some people are more operational, some are more vision oriented, some are great connectors. It's awesome to have a mix of supporters, I think. But, you know, I don't, you know, we couldn't have built the company. The capital is one thing, but we couldn't have built the company without some of the support and guidance as well, um, which has been great. Awesome. Joe, I want to look out a little bit as we come out of this pandemic. Uh, there's been an acceleration of digital transformations. And so, you know, you and I have the product background. And so we like the idea that the best product wins, but it's not always been the case. But now that we're going through these digital transformations, we see a new era of investors that um, is part of what we call the age of product, where actually the best product wins. The example being Zoom, you know, winning incredible market share against infinite distribution and and pretty much a free product like uh, Google or, or Microsoft. I'd love to hear your perspective on that age of product across the board, but also uh, specifically for uh, applied to to fintech and the finance industry. Yeah, great. Um, it's it's a fun topic. So why why do great products tend to win? Um, you know, it's funny because I, I think you and I have talked about this, SC, and and there are you know past generations of products and where the emphasis was really on kind of this raw utility. And in many cases, taken to an extreme where the user experience is mostly ignored or overlooked, right? And you know, I think what we've seen companies do, beginning you know 10, 15 years ago, and really accelerating more recently, is take those experiences, take those utility, but then deliver them in a superior experience package, right? Uh, just more function, not not more functionality, but a better uh, overall user experience design, you know, a higher quality product, if you will. Yeah. And it's, it's like, why does that work? <laughs> I think it works because, um, even in, you know, the deepest, darkest corners of enterprise, 
you know, it's still just people using the products, right? And and people want to have nice experiences and well-designed products and they want to get a lot of value and utility from them uh, very quickly. And, and the best way to do that is to make them easy to use and intuitive and thoughtful. So we, we see that all the time, right? To, to kind of elaborate on Hummingbird, we are a platform for orchestrating the work of financial compliance investigators. And, and what that means is, you know, there's a function at any financial institution where someone is investigating crime all day long. They're working cases and investing, investigating potential crime. But it's often a function that is like completely overlooked uh, in terms of the quality of design and experience that those people had. Uh, and so as we built Hummingbird, we were like, you know what, we're going to be the first product in the category where people love the design. We're gonna, we're gonna really try to celebrate the heroics of this work that is mostly kind of overlooked and unloved uh, by the industry. And it's proven to be a great, um, you know, a great journey for us. Like our, our customers are close collaborators. We get to, you know, ideally deliver a, a bit of delight into the day, make things simpler for them. Uh, remove some of the more tedious elements of it. And um, generally, it's just been a positive experience. So, Sounds like a, a good uh, a good product that's, uh, that's doing really well. If you look sort of beyond the, the horizon, and you can pick a, a, a longer term horizon, whether it's five or 10 years, what are some trends you see? Uh, innovation, business trends, future of work, future of money? What, what do you see out there? Yeah. It's amazing, you know, I think there there are two parallel waves. One is of, you know, tools companies, right? So making it easier to build industry-specific startups. Uh, we see a lot of that in finance, right? You could launch a new credit card or something like that based, you know, solely on sort of organizing a portfolio of vendors. And, you know, the, the other track, of course, is um, uh, the, the folks actually building those companies and, and the partnerships around them. I hope you don't mind. I'll probably give an answer in terms of finance and fintech just because that's where I spend my days. For sure. Um, yeah. I think what we, what we see are, are really interesting along those lines, right? We see new companies emerging like Hummingbird, but many others as well, where they're specialists in a particular part of the infrastructure or operations of a financial institution. And then the, the sort of parallel line that I mentioned is we see non-financial companies using those vendors to go into finance. Um, most notably are uh, financial products and services that are created and promoted by you know, consumer brands or uh, influencers or other things like that. So it's, it's starting to be like, you know, this is kind of a, a wild example, probably not that far off. It's like, if, you know, Beyonce issued a credit card, uh, would you want it? And the answer is for a lot of people, yes. You know, they want that sort of branded sort of influencer driven uh, financial services. And so um, some of those things are coming to fruition, even though, they might seem a little bit crazy right now. I think we'll start to see those things in the upcoming years. Um, it's, uh, yeah. Go ahead. I was going to say it's a trend that's uh, similar to the, the D2C in e-commerce or in the telco yeah. space for a while, like 
there was a bunch of uh, MVNO, right? Like Virgin had their own cell phones and things like that. So yep. uh, it's it's interesting. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry, keep keep. Um, no, yeah, that was a good example. Um, I I just saw that uh, Kiefer Boys new you know, venture, I think it's called open store, but it's basically aggregating small e-commerce players, right? And, and that that makes sense, uh, given what you were saying about it. Another trend that we see in finance is uh, super interesting is for traditional financial institutions, for banks in particular, partnering with fintechs uh, behind the scenes is, you know, can be a great way to acquire new comp- uh, customers. So in terms of, you know, acquisition of either customer accounts or assets under management or some of the metrics that actually drive the financial world, you know, banks are partnering with fintechs to actually do that acquisition. It's an interesting model. It opens up a new business model for both the fintech and the bank. It has a whole bunch of new challenges, not least of which are regulatory challenges and who's responsible for what. But it's a it's a model that type of partnership being able to make it quickly, you know, mutually beneficial, and uh, being able to operationalize it at scale is sort of a new category emerging in finance that I imagine is opening up in other parts of the industry as well. Very interesting, and um, really, it's like cross basically cross industry innovation, which you're describing. So. Mm-hmm. That's exciting. One other thing that I wanted to uh, to get your thoughts on is community and networks. Um, you you run a very large uh, global network of uh, technologists and designers, um, and you've been building communities for a long time. So I'd love to hear, in your own words, how you describe the the power of uh, of tech networks. Yeah, absolutely, and and. And this is fun. I, it's how I met you as well. So <laughs> very contextual. No, I, I uh, yeah. So I started my career in communities, um, actually ran a group of people that wanted to go see live music concerts together. It was called Live Music SF. And for a variety of reasons, um, I just got sick of attending lots of conference. Uh, concerts, but uh, kind of pivoted that into, you know, running tech events and tech communities. Uh, First and foremost was, you know, I took over Silicon Valley New Tech, which was one of the original meetup groups. I think I met you through that community, if I'm not mistaken, SC, but not sure. Yes, Uh, we met through that and then uh, designers and geeks. And hackers founders, yeah, and and so a few years after starting to run that, I sort of started to produce my own events and community, which became designers and geeks, and yeah, it has had a giant influence on my life. Certainly, you know, not just the organizer parts of it, but uh, the meetups themselves. I think it's it's something that you know we're we're just getting back to now after the pandemic and i can't wait you know i think the networking opportunities and things like that in many ways in my mind one of the things that makes you know a city like san francisco san francisco and not to say it's exclusively there but one of the things that makes sfsf is that sense of community and being able to go to community events and meet other people that are working on, you know, interesting things and, 
and form new collaborations. And I'm, I'm excited to see that that model has now, you know, taken hold around the world, really. You can go to tech meetups and other industry meetups in a lot of different places. But those things can be great ways to find and make new connections and open doors to new opportunities. So, you know, I think even if it's a virtual event, online event, of which there are many good ones now, thanks to the pandemic, or as we get back to open events and happy hours and meetups and things like that, it definitely are, are you know, sources of, you know, new ideas and new connections that have been great for me. Awesome. Joe, we're uh, at the at the end of our of our discussion here, and I have three questions that I'm going to ask you in a bit more of a you know lightning strike format. We we have some time, so um, don't sure. don't uh, don't feel time time pressed. <laughs> um, <laughs> so the first one is uh, what makes a great VC investor. I think on the investment side, it's probably good good taste in products and ability to see a new and interesting market and, and see how that product is going to go and kind of take that market. And in terms of supporting entrepreneurs, I'll, I'll go ahead and put in a plug there for just being, you know, as supportive as possible to the entrepreneurs that you work with and helping with, you know, connections and things like that, but not feeling um, like you need to get in and kind of steer the company either. So the, uh, the art of governance, right? Don't step in, don't step out. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, what advice do you have for, for this uh, audience? Our listeners are investors themselves and some entrepreneurs as well. For the investors, uh, you know, I would say, um, you know, get out there and, and build connections and um, build sort of your own profile and, and just look for the best stuff. Uh, I am not personally a great investor. I've made a few opportunistic angel investments and in friends companies and things like that. But, you know, I'm always grateful to be a part of this ecosystem and have the support of people that are bringing capital to the table. So, only advice, I guess, would just be to, you know, to be out there and realize that that is part of the ecosystem that all makes it go and you know, try to be as supportive as possible of the entrepreneurial process. For the entrepreneurs, like, you know, I know there's a lot of advice and things like that out there. And like you get these really like, I don't know, um, self-congratulatory, you know, Twitter threads and things like that. I always try to be a bit contrarian and just say, you know, there's, there's actually no specific path to success or no sort of preordained path to success. If you look at companies that are successful, they by and large have kind of forged their own trail. And obviously you can take advice and learn and, and, you know, get ideas from different sources, but there's no playbook for it, right? There's no playbook for a perfectly successful company. It comes from inspiration, work, timing, luck. So, you know, I think before you go doom scrolling on Twitter for entrepreneurial advice, just remember that nobody has all the answers. <laughs> yes, getting on social can be a great way to get demotivated. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> You, you, out of all people, are always looking to learn new things and, and stay sharp and reinvent yourself. So I'd love to hear what are the books and the podcasts or blogs that inspire you the most. 
Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I'm a longtime lover and reader of sci-fi, you know, sometimes for the ideas. Um, I'll, I'll give that another plug here. But a new one more recently for me has been um, we're, we're just like in a golden age of email newsletters. And uh, I'm amazed, you know, between Substack and some of the different sources out there at the things you can sign up for and get, you know, sort of the best content of the web delivered right to your inbox. I'm trying to think here, I, I could probably drop a few names. One more recent one I became aware of is... Uh, uh, I believe it's called Winning the Web, but um, just a lot of great content culled from, you know, 100 different data sources. And there's a few that I've seen that summarize more technical articles. Um, so, yeah, just take a look at Substack and take a look for best newsletters. You'll find something that meets your own, you know, interests and niche. Great. Well, thank you so much, Joe. That was uh, that was a fun discussion. It's always a pleasure to catch up with you. Is there anything else you'd like to share uh, in this podcast? No, it's uh, great. It's fantastic to be here. Thanks for the opportunity. I appreciate it. Of course. Thank you. That's a wrap. Tune in next week for another candid conversation on what makes a great VC investor with your host, the Kaufman Fellows. 